Thank you so much. Go ahead and bring my uh, slides up if you would. Uh, fifth time, I believe, that you've had me back to speak on creation at your church, and I want to thank you for one very specific reason. I've been teaching for about 30 years, and this is probably the church I've been to more than any other church. And I take about four basic messages, and I always tune them and change them and customize them, but they're kind of the same message I'm bringing when I bring to churches. And you forced me to come up with a fifth message, so uh, I appreciate that. And, and uh, it's kind of fun to do something completely different. Um, now, normally I am concentrating, because God's put onto my heart the importance of creation to Christianity and the battle that we're in for our culture, on the book of Genesis, the, the greatest book on creation, because that's where it all starts. And in that book, God, we, we find out who made everything and where everything came from and when things were created and how they were created, the order in which things happened, all that, the when, where, and how. But today's message is mainly about why is creation so important. And I'm going to spend the majority of the message not in the book of Genesis, but in the book of Job, which is the second greatest creation book in the entire Bible. And most people don't even realize that. They don't think of it in that way. Now, the title of the message is The Awe of God. Now, I will guarantee you almost everybody here has grandchildren and great-grandchildren and even children who seem to have no interest in God or going to church or the things of God. Every one of us, and our heart breaks over that. And at the root of that, the causation of that, is that they have lost the awe of who God is somewhere along their path in life. Now, for many of them, it's been trained out of them through the whole education, media, museum, world system. For others, the pains and struggles and inequities of life have driven out that awe of God. So this message is very, very, very important. But I'm not going to start right away with the book of Job. I'm going to start with a parable, a story. Because that's the way Jesus liked to teach, and it's just so powerful with visual images. So I need you to imagine with me that you are the son or the daughter of Michelangelo, you know, four or five hundred years ago. And you grew up with him. And as he gets into his later years, you're still living with him, you're still a child, the Pope has told Michelangelo he needs to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel because he's the greatest artist the world has ever known, the greatest sculptor the world has ever known. Michelangelo wants to concentrate on sculpting, but the Pope is in charge. So day after day, week after week, month after month, for over two years, that man is lying on his back on the top of a scaffold with paint mixed with plaster, creating a fresco so it lasts longer on the ceiling of the entire chapel. Enormous work of art. Dad, come play ball with us like you used to. Oh, I've got to paint the ceiling. Dad, read us a book. I've got to paint the ceiling. You watch him, the agony. Historians say it ruined his eyesight, doing nothing but concentrating on that chapel for two years. And it's finally done. It's one of the masterpieces of art of the entire world through all history. Years later, decades later, you've moved away. Your father has died. You come on a tour of the Sistine Chapel. And as the tour guide is taking you through, he says, This ceiling is a miraculous happening. You see water leached through the roof, and it picked up minerals. And as it came down, it created all of these beautiful works of art on this ceiling by the random processes. God guided it, but it's pure random process that created this ceiling in a miraculous way. What would you think? What would you think? What would you say? You would be irate. You saw who did it. You knew who did it. And none of the credit was given to your father. You understand that's exactly what's happening throughout our education system. 
Throughout Christian churches, we're told, oh, God just used evolution. But it destroys the awe of who God is. You may be able to hang on to your faith and believe in evolution at the same time that bacteria literally turned into people over time. That's what evolution teaches as a fact of science. And it's everywhere in the movies, the museums, the textbooks, the authorities. Over a dozen court cases have been taken to the Supreme Court to try to get the evidence for creation taught in the public education system. Everyone's been thrown out because of the separation of church and state. You're bringing God in when you throw out evolution. So it permeates the thinking. You may be able to hang on to God and evolution, but the next generation won't. And that's what's happening all around us. Now, what does that have to do with the book of Job? That's where we're going to go next. You see, Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Now, many people think, oh, no, 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 it's Genesis. It talks about creation, which happened before time even began. But as far as being pinned, that was pinned by Moses, collecting, I think, probably statements from Adam, who walked with God and was revealed things to them, passed down to Noah, brought him through the flood, eventually ended up in the hands of Moses, who put them as the book of Genesis. But Job involves things from someone who was contemporary with Abraham about 4,000 years ago. Uh, that's believed to be the time frame of this book, 600 years before Genesis was written. It contains incredible scientific insights. We're going to talk about a few of those. But this is the important point. You ask most people why they don't believe in God, they'll first say, oh, it's been, you know, evolution's proven it didn't exist. But then it'll come back to this, well, how could a God of love and all power create a world who has all this death and sin and disease and babies dying and destruction and diseases and cancers? What kind of God is that? See, that's their view of God. And if you can't address this pain and suffering issue, you're probably not going to be able to reach them. And last, it provides the ultimate solution for the pain and suffering that we all are going through. We are, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, whether you're good or bad, whether you're following of God or not, you're going to have problems. That's the world we've brought upon ourselves through sin. Now, Job was literally an unbelievable human being. Uh, he was a man of enormous wealth. This is one of the chapters right at the very beginning of Job. It says, there was, Job had seven sons and seven daughters, ten children. He had, and I'm, I'm struggling to see, but I, okay, 7,000 sheep. Now, I want you to remember this, these numbers because I'm going to come back to them at the very end. 7,000 sheep. He had 3,000 camels, 500 ox, and 500 donkeys. And a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Now, throughout the book, it describes who he was. He gave to the poor. He was seeked out for his wisdom. He was kind. He was compassionate. He provided employment. He was revered. He was considered one of the greatest men on the earth of his day, and one of the richest men on the earth of his day. Greatly blessed. And yet, in the midst of all that, a storm comes and kills every one of his children in one day. They're gone. All ten children, killed by a natural disaster. God controls the weather. All of his wealth is destroyed. Everything he owns is gone. His homes, his cattle, his herds, everything. They're just gone. And then his health completely is destroyed. His whole body, from the soles of his feet to the scalp of his hair, is covered with unbelievably painful, sore, oozing, bloody blisters. And he's scraping himself constantly with a broken piece of pottery just to try to relieve the pain that he's in. And you get the feeling for day after day, week after week, maybe month after month. Everything is gone. 
The man who had it all lost it all. The man who is at the pinnacle of everything is at the depth of human depravity and pain. That's Job. Okay? Now, this is what his wife has to say to him. Well, this is what he said. First of all, after all this happens, he still says, Naked, I came out of my mother's womb. Naked, I shall return hither. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed is the name of the Lord in the midst of all this. Think of that man. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So now the real test comes. First, his wife, who says, Thou still retain thy integrity? Curse God and die. That's her solution, okay? And then, but he said unto her, foolish woman, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. What? Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not evil? In all this, again, sin did not pass Job's lips. Okay? So then for the next 36 chapters, he is tested. His friends come with a singular message. You had to have sinned. You had to have done something wrong. You had to have offended God. Because if you do things right, good things happen. If you do things wrong, bad things happen. In other words, it's our works that brings us into salvation. It's how we behave that gets us good things from God. That is the message of Satan through every church and every age throughout the history of the world from then, from the beginning onward. We can work our way into God's graces, and then good things will be there. No, we can't. Our best efforts, our holiness, our righteousness are like filthy rags getting us back into God's presence. And if we don't get that, why do we need a Savior? Why would Jesus need to have died if we can do anything to work our way back? You get it? All of the Bible is about Jesus. And it's starting right here with this whole chapter. So what is the solution when you're in all of this pain? Because throughout those 36 chapters, Job is also has a singular question. Why is this happening to me? Why have I been put through such pain and trials? I wish I had never been born, said Job. He is in so much agony. And the book answers it in a way no human would ever expect. Now, a little sidelight. I want to talk about some of the astounding things in this book of Job. And I'm just going to pick five of them really quick. This is a statement from Job 26 where it says, God stretched out the north over an empty place. He hangeth the earth upon nothing. Now, this was written 4,000 years ago. All those ancient cultures, the Greeks, they believed the earth was like on the shoulders of Atlas. You see those pictures who held up the earth on something. You know, the, the Indians from India, they believed the earth's on the shoulders of an elephant. All the way up into the Middle Ages, they believed, well, it's got to just be rested. The earth's like a big table, which is resting there on something. It's just a big flat plate resting on something. No, the earth floats in space, just held by gravity. It's, it's literally upon space, upon nothing. So long before humanity had any clue, long before modern science figured all this out, God told us the way things were. The book of Job explains that the universe is expanding. He alone spreads out the heavens. In Isaiah, it says God rolled out the heavens like a scroll. In other places, it says the heavens were stretched out like a curtain. That creation period early on was a process of stretching out space itself. It wasn't until 1927 that Hubble discovered the universe literally is expanding. Until then, all those scientists for several hundred years assumed, even Albert Einstein, everything was static and nothing was moving. The Bible was right all along. It's in the book of Job. The earth is rotating. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days, the morning spring? In other words, the, the day spring to know its place. The day springs into existence and then disappears, and then comes back and disappears and comes back and disappears. It springs into existence. And then the last part, the earth is turned as clay to a seal. Clay 
on a spinning wheel. Goes around the same spot, comes around and around and around. The earth is turning. Wasn't discovered, even up into the Middle Ages, it was believed things were geocentric. The earth was stationary and everything was rotating around it. Taught as a scientific fact right up into the 1700s. So the Bible knew all of this from the very beginning. It's so clear it's divinely inspired. It talks about springs in the sea. Hast thou entered into the springs of the sea or walked in search of their depth? It wasn't until 1967 science, oceanographers discovered enormous geothermal vents shooting billions of gallons of water from deep within the earth up into the oceans. Springs literally at the bottom of the sea. 4,000 years after this statement was made. And then two other quick ones. This was just so cool. Canst thou bind the sweet influences of Platyces or loose the bands of Oron? Now, those are two constellations. The constellations have been known since, I think, all the way back at the time of Adam. God arranged things in the sky that were given certain patterns to mean certain things called the constellations. Well, there's a group of stars in Pleiades that are gravitationally bound to each other. So those stars stay in exactly the same position, and the gravity keeps them from moving apart. Now, we didn't know this back when this was written, but there's another constellation where the band, that's the belt of Oron, the stars that make up that belt are moving apart but it is impossible to see them moving apart without incredibly powerful telescopes. And they're moving kind of away from us on a plane where we're looking into it, so you can't see them even over a 100-year period moving. But now with powerful telescopes, we can. So those stars are loose and separating, but the stars in the other constellation are bound by gravity. It's turned out to be absolutely, literally, to the word, true. And nobody could have possibly known it 4,000 years ago. So it's just, in the, in the last thing, the last one. Hast thou entered the treasures of snow or seen the treasures of hail? Snow is mentioned four times in the book of Job. No other book of the Bible is it mentioned that often. I think every other time is only one a classic example is, is, though your sins be red as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow in Isaiah. And there's only a couple other mentions of snow in the entire Bible, and there's four in Job. Why? Because Job was written during the Ice Age. The Ice Age immediately followed the flood as warm water evaporated, condensed as snow, came down in the northern latitudes, Israel was never covered with snow, but they knew about lots and lots of snow. So it's repeated, this idea of snow, over and over again in a book that was written during the time of the Ice Age. It wasn't until 1850 that modern science discovered there had to have been an Ice Age on this planet. Before then, it was never even considered, never even thought about, that there could have been enormous amounts of ice upon this planet. Now, those are just some insights. Now, I'm going to jump to the end of Job, and then we're going to get in to some of the awe of God when we actually acknowledge creation. This is close to where Job ends. God, after this 37 chapters of wringing of the hands and false accusations that you can work your way into salvation and good things, God comes to provide a solution to Job for his pain and agony and misery. Uh, God says, where was thou? And this was our scripture reading. And by the way, I'm using King James. I, I love different versions, and there's a certain majesty about this language in, in this scripture verse. Where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Who stretched out the line thereupon, whereupon the foundations were fastened? And who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang and all the sons, that's the angels, shouted with joy. And it goes on. For the next four chapters, God is describing what he made in just stunning 
detail. Questioning Job about his knowledge and what he can know. And what's Job's response at the end, Job's response at the end of that? I know thou can do everything. See, God could not have pain and evil and suffering if he wanted it. So if it's there, he's allowing it. God can do everything. And that no thought can be withheld from thee, from God. He knows everything. Therefore, I've uttered things I should not, like wishing he had not even been born. Things that are too wonderful for me, which I knew not. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Okay, now this is really critical. We've all heard of God. Your children have heard of God. Your grandchildren have heard of God. Your great-grandchildren, they've heard of God. They've heard of it. But now mine eyes have seen thee. Did he just see God when God was speaking to him? No. Nobody sees God. What do we see? We see what God has made. And that is what cements the awe of God in our hearts and our minds and our soul by seeing what he's made. Unless it's trained out of our thinking. And then the awe disappears. That's the acid of evolution. It destroys the awe of understanding what God has made. Where I abhor myself, I repent in dust and ashes for having doubted God's goodness. Now, just this, this is just really cool, so I've got to end with this as far as the book of Job. So this is Job right near the very end, the fifth verse from the end. It says, so God blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep. Anybody remember how many he had at the beginning? 7,000, twice as many, and 6,000 camels. How many did he have at the beginning? Three, twice as many. And a thousand yoke of oxen. At the beginning, 500, twice as many. And a thousand donkeys. He had 500. So he got twice as much of everything at the end. And he also had seven sons and three daughters, 10 children. How many did he have at the beginning? 10. How many does he have at the end? Wrong! He still has 20 children. Just because we die, we're not gone. We're gone from our physical life, but our spirit and our soul lives on. It's either going to live with God forever, or it's going to be separated in agony forever, but it still exists. You see, God gave Job 20 children, just like he doubled the number of things he had before, he still has those 20 children. So he didn't have to give him 20. He doesn't have them physically, but they're still there. Do you understand the hope in that passage? When someone dies, it doesn't mean we're never going to see them again. If we have taken the time to show them the path to heaven and help them maintain that awe of God so they don't leave God and Jesus Christ out of their thinking, we haven't lost them. They're still going to be there. This is so critical. So much good stuff in this book. And by the way, the ultimate hope, Job knew it all along. Greatest, one of the greatest verses of the Bible, in the midst of the worst pain and suffering imaginable, he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. That's Jesus Christ, the Redeemer in the middle of the oldest book in the Bible, stated as clearly as you could possibly understand. Job knew it because it was revealed to him, and he knew it. Okay, now let's jump into the awe of God. How am I doing on time? Good, I've still got 20 minutes left. And it's just everywhere. But I've picked five examples. I'm going to start, and by the way, if any of you don't have those creation devotionals and you haven't given them to the hands of your children and your grandchildren, everybody will read what's on their birthday. 365 days, it's a devotional. There's one of these examples I'm going to show you about the things God has done and how all of astronomy and science and geology and physics fits into what the Bible has to say. Those books connect God's word to what the world around us thinks is reality and makes this reality. 
So critical, so powerful. This is one of those pages. There's this thing called a marine iguana. Now, it's about four foot long, lives on the Galapagos Islands, and it loves to go into the ocean to get its food. That's where it eats. It eats fish. Trouble is, this island's surrounded by sharks. And this big old iguana to a shark is like a filet mignon. I mean, it's just juicy and lots of food and just gulp it down. So they go out there to eat, and here comes a shark, and it just eats it. I mean, Bob's sitting there with his brother George, and George goes swimming, and he doesn't come back. And Bob's thinking, what happened to George? Well, he got eaten by a shark. So what's Bob going to do? He's got to go out there to eat. He figures it out. He's got a solution. You see, sharks have really lousy eyesight, but really good hearing. And this iguana has a pretty big heart. So when it's out there swimming, you know, its heart's going... I mean, even above the waves, the shark can hear that sound. It's very distinct. And it will zero right in and eat the iguana based on its heart pumping. So Bob figures, I know what I'll do. I'll shut down my heart. So this animal, when it goes out to go swimming, it turns off its heart. And it swims for 20 minutes with no beating heart. Shark can't hear it. Sounds kind of like the waves moving around. Grabs its food, has supper, crawls back up on the land. It forgot to evolve the ability to start its heart back up. See, it would take thousands of programming changes to the DNA code of a creature to be able to swim around for 20 minutes with no heartbeat. Its whole metabolism would have to change. But what if it figures out somehow random changes, mutations, make all that programming changes to happen, but at the same time it figures out how to shut off its heart, it hasn't programmed the ability to restart its heart. See, everything would have to be there all at once or nothing works. It is unbelievable that random changes to a programming code, and that's what DNA is. It's a program to tell the structure of the cells what to make and how to operate could cause an animal to live without a heart for 20 minutes. It's the only animal in existence that can do this. There's no relative. There's no slow, gradual transition from one animal to the next. It's the only one that can do that. I mean, that ought to make our jaws drop open. If you're at all logical, the awe of a God who could do that is just astounding. And then, okay, now we'll go to the birds. That was one of my beasts. This is my, this is my favorite because it's called the bar-tailed godwit and not the bar-tailed evolution wit. It's the godwit. There's no other bird in all of creation that can do what this bird can do. It's so cool. You see, the godwit loves to spend the summer in Alaska because it just explodes with all sorts of algae, which draws all sorts of fish, which draws whales, which draws all sorts of animal life up to Alaska in the summer. It's a smorgasbord of food. So it just eats and eats and eats and has a fun summer. But it's starting to get cold, and it, for whatever reason, it spends its winter in New Zealand, where it's a lot warmer. But it gets there by flying 7,000 miles over open ocean. There's no islands, there's no sandbars, there's no place to land. It can't swim. This animal runs along the seashore on these long stocky legs. It's not like a duck. If it lands in the ocean, it can't take back off again because its wings won't get it up out of the water. It's going to drown. So for 7,000 miles, it takes between five and seven days of continuously flapping its wings to get there. Now, scientists, science is the study of how creation operates, not where it came from, okay? That's all just faith and storytelling, the whole cosmic evolution thing and the biological evolution thing. It's storytelling to leave God out, somehow come up with some plausible other explanation. They figured out, because they're looking at how creation operates, there is no way this bird, with its size, has enough fat and enough calories 
to fly for seven continuous days without nosediving into the ocean. It's an impossibility. Because they know how many calories it takes each time it flaps its wings. And it doesn't have enough fat. It can't get there, but it does. So they started studying it, okay? Turns out, in order to get there, it gorges itself for weeks ahead of time. It just eats and eats and eats, and it gains 55% in weight. All right, I want you to imagine each of yourselves gaining 55%. If you weigh, you know, 150, now you weigh 220. It's like... Okay, so now you have the Goodyear blimp, Godwit. It still can't get there because now it's not streamlined. It's got all that extra weight it's carrying, and it's still going to nosedive into the ocean. So even though it ate a bunch of food, it doesn't work to get it there. So it takes all that food, and it turns it into a very unique, not found in all, any other birds, concentrated fat. Gets rid of all the water and just maintains the energy content of the fat. Other birds don't do that. This bird does. But it's still like the Goodyear blimp. So at that point, it shrivels up all of its internal organs, its liver, its intestines, its stomach, its kidneys. All of them just shrivel up to paper thin to make room for the fat. Now its body becomes streamlined again. It's like a big storage container of nothing but fat and muscles. And it's able to fly 7,000 miles nonstop. Now, how does that happen in a step-by-step process of evolution? It can't. It would never happen slowly and gradually. The ability to shrivel the organs, the ability to, to make that kind of fat, the desire to eat all that food, the knowing exactly what island to get there all has to happen at once. It's that awe of what God has made. See, we can see his, his genius in his care, in his intelligence, in his creativity through these things. That's why they're there. I'm, I'm sure he had fun making them, but he knew he was making them for our education and enjoyment. Now, here's the Michelangelo of fish. Michelangelo was a sculptor above all else. The Japanese pufferfish. Now, one of my videos, The Rock's Crowd, it's 18 lessons like this. Um, I had a chance to interview scientists. Where they, they were biologists and geologists and astrophysicists and so on. And I asked each of them, in your area of study, what is the most stunning, convincing evidence for God's existence that the Bible is true? And one of them was the head of anesthesiology at La Paloma University. And his answer kind of surprised me. So you'll hear his answer to that question. What, what is the most convincing evidence for God for you? At the very beginning, and then you're going to see a little video by an evolutionist about this puffer fish. Uh, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, turn up the sound. Did you not f- plug it in, the sound? Huh. This is not going to work without the sound. That has impressed me is the reality that in the natural sphere there is beauty in the physical domain and beauty makes no contribution to fitness or to survival. So, in one area, Darwinian evolution collapses. Unfortunately, this small Japanese pufferfish is dull, almost to the point of invisibility. But to compensate, he is probably nature's greatest artist. To grab a female's attention, he creates something that almost defies belief. His only tools are his fins. In his head, a plan of mathematical perfection. He plows the sand, breaking it up into the finest of particles.
These shells aren't just rubbish to be removed. He uses them to decorate the bridges of his construction. He can't rest for more than a moment, but must work 24 hours a day for a week, or the current will destroy his creation. A final tidy up, and his masterpiece is complete. in nature does an animal construct something as complex and perfect as this. If this doesn't get him noticed, nothing will. So um, there's the explanation from the world for beauty. That fish created that beautiful sculpture so he would attract a babe. And then they could come lay eggs. Okay, that's the world's thinking. A little mound would have done the same thing. You know, we could never create that. That fish never flies up to see what he's making. He's programmed to make this beautiful sculpture. It's only about six inches. If he was as tall as me, it would be like me with my head shoving around sand and making a perfect circle all the way from here out to the street. Absolutely perfect without ever looking at what I'm making. No human being could do that, but that little fish can. Because God wants us to be in awe of what he's made. It's not because he creates beauty to attract a female. I mean, that thinking has been taught as fact through schools for 150 years. Here's a statement by Charles Darwin. The sight of a feather in a peacock, whenever I gaze at it, makes me sick. Why? Because his goal was to kill God. He wrote that in multiple letters. Charles Darwin's goal was to kill God in people's thinking by showing them everything could be done and made without God. That's what evolution's all about. And he couldn't explain beauty. Well, later people said, oh, beauty's there so that bees can find flowers and mates can find themselves and they're attracted to things that are beautiful. And it's taught as a fact. Except when they test it, it doesn't work. Several dozen years ago, they thought, oh, we'll just test this. So they took a male peacock and they cut off all those pretty feathers, okay, that made it look like eyes. Just cut off all the color so it's just the stalk sticking out. And then they sent it into a field with a bunch of other beautiful peacocks with a bunch of other women to see which one would the girls choose. So he's pug ugly. Didn't make a bit of difference. The girls didn't care that he was beautiful. It was something else that was causing them to choose him random chance or whatever. Didn't have anything to do with beauty. So it's all a lie. Beauty's there because God made it. Okay, I gotta ask Brian, does a big hook come out if I go like five minutes over? Because I can skip past a couple other examples. All right, I'm gonna go five minutes over. Bear with me. And I'll go fairly quick. Harvard, no, it was Princeton University researchers wanted to see how smart is a bee. A bee has a brain the size of a grain of sand. But they also know that they're real smart at communicating to each other. But how smart are they at leading others to a source of food? So they set up a bunch of hives, and then they put a real rich source of sweet food about 200 feet away. Let the bees out, watched. How long did it take them to come back, find other bees, and take them to the source after the first bee found it? How long till they brought other bees? It was about 10 minutes. See, the bees would come back, they'd go back to the hive, 
And they do this little dance where they wiggle their butt and walk through the hive while the other bees are watching. Okay, and what they're doing, the direction that's the the, the angle away from the line of the honeycomb shows them the direction they need to fly. How many times they go around in a circle tells them how far they have to fly, and then they go find the nectar. Ten minutes. So then they moved it 400 feet away. Let the bees out. Bee found it, came back, flew back. Ten minutes. Third time, 600 feet away. Found the nectar, flew back to the hive, found some other bees. They flew back. Ten minutes. So then they did it a fourth time. It's 800 feet away. The bees were waiting for them to show up with the food. Those little sand of grain brains had figured out the pattern, the direction, what was going to happen next, and they were already there waiting for the food to show up. The bees outsmarted the PhD researchers. It's so awesome! What God can do with a grain of sand size brain. I'm going to skip past this one. Hang on just a second. I've got it. There is a little creature in the ocean called a sea sapphire. God, you think Marvel invented invisibility? God invented invisibility. See, this little creature, it's about a fourth of an inch long. It's bright blue like a sapphire. When light hits it, all the spectrum is absorbed of all the colors except for that, that sapphire blue, which bounces back. But it goes through a series of translucent scales, like butterfly wing scales, and they're set exactly the distance apart as that wavelength of light. So it goes through them, hits the bottom one, and bounces back out. But when you shift those plates, now they're at an angle. Instead of coming straight through, if the light's coming this way, it has to go farther And all of a sudden, the blue becomes absorbed, and all of the light is absorbed. And its body is kind of like, just kind of translucent. So all of a sudden, what you see is at the bottom of the ocean, and the animal disappears. It becomes literally invisible. Watch as this little creature turns. Whoops. Okay, there it is. It's getting ready to turn, and it just turned. And you can see the bottom of the ocean below it it can become invisible. God created invisibility in the creatures he created by allowing it to absorb light and its body transmitting what's left right on through it. Um, The opu fish, down to my last two quick examples. Now, the opu fish has to lay its eggs in fresh water, lives off the island of Hawaii, the big island, Uh, out in the ocean where there's salt water. So like salmon, it lives in salt water, but it has to lay its eggs in fresh water. The only source of fresh water is at the top of this waterfall. So it lives out here, and if it lays its eggs at the bottom, this stuff gets flushed into the ocean, and the eggs would die. So there won't be another generation unless that fish can get to the top of the waterfall to lay its eggs. How do you do that with a fish? It's 440 feet tall with rushing water year-round kind of a conundrum, isn't it? I mean, I ask students, I love this example, I use it in schools, how do they get there? And the kids will sometimes say, well, maybe it flies. They've heard of flying fish. But fish don't fly. They stick out their fins and they glide a ways and come back down. They can get maybe 10 feet off the ground, not 440 feet. So how's it going to get to the top of the waterfall? I say, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's like they're Spider-Man and they'll climb with their little suction cup fingers. Well, not true. Well, course there are suction cups like there's a movie called mission impossible where the hero grabs a suction cup to f- climb this big tower in in Dubai. dubai uh actually that's exactly what god did on this kind of fish and this fish only he created a suction cup this is a human hand so it's only about eight inches long on the bottom of the fish it goes and it sticks its suction cup to the wall and shoves with its back fin reattaches, shoves, reattaches, shoves, and in a matter of a day or so, it will climb 440 feet to the top of that waterfall, jump in the fresh water, go lay its eggs. Those fish will become fingerlings, which are small little fry fish, and then they'll get flushed back out into the ocean where they can survive. And then they repeat the process. How's evolution do that? I mean, one day was a perfectly normal fish. The baby's born and it has a suction cup on its stomach. It's like, whoa, what do I do with this? Oh, I know. I'll go stick myself to a wall and climb a 400-foot waterfall. It's not going to do that. See, evolution does not work. 
It absolutely contradicts the Word of God. It does not work scientifically, and yet people buy into it because they're told over and over and over and over and over and over again it's true. Just because the majority believe something, they've just been trained to believe it, doesn't determine truth. Now, last example is chemical luminescence. It's everywhere in the biological world. You, you, you see jellyfish that are gorgeously colored blue. I mean, basically, it's like these sticks. When you break them, what you're doing, and by the way, these are not color, different colors. They're completely different chemicals that create and give off different colored light white or green or blue or red, almost every color of the spectrum. Uh, but we find this all over the animal kingdom. Here are bacteria or plankton that are just covering, filled in the ocean waves at night. The waves look like they're lit up because of plankton that has bioluminescence. Here are mushrooms in the forest at night. They're glowing a bright green. This one is so cool. This is a squid. See those little dots? Those can be turned on and off in patterns so it looks like a light show that's waving in waves across the rear end of the squid in bioluminescence. Here's 3,000 feet below the water where there is no light. And God has created a fish with a little light bulb on a stock that attracts other fish so he can eat them when they come to see the light. Again, bioluminescence. And, and honestly, the most common and my most favorite is, what is this? A lightning bug. And it can turn it on and off rapidly or leave it on for long periods of time. God created a bug with a light on its butt. Come on! Where's the awe of a bug with a light on its butt? God made that. It shows up so many places on so many different variety of creatures of totally different animal kingdoms that biologists are forced to believe bioluminescence evolved 40 different times, completely independent and separate from from one another. Because the chemicals that are involved aren't even the same, and they're on completely different genes. A gene is like a chapter in a book. In the book of the plankton, it's got one chapter, In the book of the jellyfish, it's got a totally different unrelated chapter that allows it to make bioluminescence. Chapters don't write themselves. The truth is so obvious. God did this to stun us with the truth. Now, I want to wrap up with a couple statements. If God can put a light on a bug's butt, don't you think he can light your way through your troubles? Don't you think he can? Don't you think he's allowed those troubles for some purpose in your life or someone else's life? And this life is so short compared to eternity. Get the perspective. You see, Job, when crying out, why am I going through all this agony? God never answered that question. What God did was take your focus off yourself and off of your problems and put it on me and who I am and what I've done and what I've done in the past in your life, and what you really know about me. You see, the cross is shaped the way it is for a reason. It's got a long vertical pole pointing to God and what he can do. And the horizontal bar is the relationships we have in the world. And it's short compared to that long vertical bar. The horizontal and the vertical. Concentrate on the vertical when we're going through these problems. That's the lesson of Job. And Job learned it. Now, wrap up with this. It's all about perspective. Okay, it should, okay. Watch this little one-minute film. Now, as I step into this room, it should be quite obvious that something is wrong, but can you figure out what it is? Your mind may tell you that I have grown smaller. Of course, you know that that really isn't true. Your eyes, however, are telling you the truth. They're telling you that the floor is tilted up, that the ceiling is tilted down, that the walls are badly distorted, that the windows would be almost impossible to make drapes for them. Yes, your eye is telling you all this, but your mind simply refuses to believe it. But maybe this will help. 
Imagine all of this without benefit of vitamins. But it also works the other way, too. Now, if you'll just step back a bit. Now, the camera's going to move back, and you're going to see, see what you're really seeing. You'll see the real cause of the trouble. It's quite obvious at this distance, isn't it? Sloping floor, tilted ceiling, distorted walls. But uh, since you understand this, you shouldn't have a bit of trouble from now on, should you? Or should you? Now, there's no trick photography. We're just looking in at that house, room without the, the big view. this house, faces at the window seem to come in assorted sizes, don't they? But uh, there's nothing wrong with the faces. It's those windows and what they're doing to your brain, remember? A small one and a tall one. Let's see if we can even things out a bit. <laughs> oh, no. That's even worse. It comes as a distinct shock to most people when they realize how limited and how inaccurate the human senses really are. See, there was no trick photography. If you're just seeing the little picture, everything is distorted. Meaning disappears. Hope disappears. Trust disappears. When you step back and get the true perspective of reality and history and eternity and God's perspective... All of a sudden, the things that were so distorted aren't distorted anymore. And we don't even know it's happening because we've been trained to think in a way that leaves God out. This is all God is saying. Do not be conformed to this world. Or in, in, in IV, it says to the pattern of thinking of this world. They think in a way, whether they're in a church or not, whether you're a Christian or not, if you're accepting stuff that's contrary to the Bible, you're trained to leave God out as you go out and do science and observation. You get a distorted perspective. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll know the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's, that's what's going on all around us. When you're in pain, when you're in struggle, when you're having problems go back to realizing god is the one who made it all he's the one that put a light on the butt of a bug and he can light your way through your problems thank you